I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel, and of course, I am joined by my co-host, Joe. As we usually do on the pod today, we have a special guest. And Joe and I are very much looking forward to chatting about their contribution to the beautiful game down the years, as well as the impact that football has had on their life too. He's a former professional footballer who's notorious as a leader and often captain wherever he went. Currently, he's a UEFA licensed coach, having been involved on the academy side of things. And at one of his former clubs, he's even managed in the Premier League, albeit just the once for now. We welcome Mark Hudson to the United Mates Football Podcast. Mark, cheers for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, good. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, sounds good, that, the lead-in. Um, I'd like to think that in the future there could be more Premier League uh, manager, managerial appearances. Um, but yeah, no, sounds good so far. <laughs> yeah, jumped in right at the deep end, I think, facing off against Pep Guardiola in that one match that we're referring to. Otherwise... Joe, since we last recorded, the new season has kicked off. Your lot Spurs beat the champions. And of course, my team, Arsenal, played Brentford. And well, I'll just say congratulations to former guest and Brentford fan, Nathan Caton. Enjoy that one. As a comedian, you're probably used to having the last laugh, but we're going to get you next time at the Emirates. Anyway, Joe, how has the return of the Premier League got you feeling? Pleasantly surprised, I can only imagine, after you beat City. Yeah, I mean, as a Spurs fan, it was, it was the perfect weekend, really. We beat Man City and Arsenal lost. So, yeah, I cannot complain with that. And, yeah, it's not just the Brentford fans that enjoyed that game, Kai, let me tell you. I was loving that one on Friday night. But, um, Mark, as Kai said, you know, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us for this podcast. And whenever we um, have a guest on the podcast, we always start with an icebreaker question. So we've got one for you. And our icebreaker question for you is we've we've had a look at your Twitter and we've actually, God, we've really dug into the past here. Oh, no. I don't know know whether I should be worried about this. Don't worry, nothing too controversial. But in um, in 2015, you actually commented on a post from, I think it was your teammate at the time, Kevin McNaughton. And Kevin had... um, painted a really quite impressive picture, actually, of Clint Eastwood, which you um, you praised him on this um, said post. So our question for you is going to be, you're going to probably have to think about when you were younger here, but what is um, the best piece of art you've ever produced? And we'll, we'll give you some time to think about it. So I'll, I'll start with mine, because it required a bit of thinking for me too. But I think when I was about 10 or 11, I... Um, I did, uh, I don't know if it was a painting, but I certainly drew the front cover of a Family Guy DVD for some reason, <laughs> something at school. And I think I was quite happy with that. So that will be um, that will be my kind of offering for this. But Kai, how about you? What's, what's the best piece of art you've ever produced? I must still, my stock is rising as an artist, I think, because it was done recently. So I guess I'm just getting better and better without ever actually trying my hand at it. I'm mostly just kidding. But basically recently, my brother had a, 
um, at a party in, in a park and it was like wine tasting and painting. And we all got these mini canvases and I drew uh, or I painted one of my dogs and I can actually show it off here. It's got, it's got oh, bite, got it. bite marks got around the home. edge. Yeah, yeah. For everyone watching, that's Zeus. It's was that fan- you after the red wine eating the corners of that? Or was that just- <laughs> that's between my two dogs. They've, they've nibbled away at it. They, they love it that much. They just can't keep their, keep their mouths and hands off it. But otherwise, it's Joe... much better than what I could produce, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I don't know. You've got, you've got your kids who I, I'm assuming are probably budding artists as well. Have you been getting up to any like finger painting with them or any of the macaroni they stuff? Are, to be fair, the two boys and my oldest is very, very good. Um, I was going to, I've got a load of books here, but actually his sketchbook's not here. He is very, very good. And he doesn't get any of that from me. <laughs> he gets that all from his mum. So, yeah, for my trying to think back, I think I used to. I've got a love of cars as well. I think it would have been, I couldn't give you the date, but it was a long time ago. And I think it would have been a drawing and it would have been a classic car of some kind that I would have drawn and redrawn and redrawn and redrawn. (laughs) It still wouldn't have been any good. But I used to, I think that's probably what I would have, most likely drawn when I was younger. Um, there was not much else that I drew. I think I was too active to actually sit for more than about 30 seconds. I think I had ants in my pants when I was younger. So I think, yeah, I'd say a car and it probably would have been a Mustang, a classic one. Um, excuse if you find two kittens jump across me in a minute. We've just acquired two kittens, but they're very annoying. Um, but yeah, so it would have been a, it would have been a Mustang, a classic one probably a 1967 fastback and that would have been when I was about 10 or 11. Uh, nice out here in Los Angeles I see my fair share of Mustangs it sounds like you were probably uh, smart to go down the footballing route as opposed to the <laughs> the artistic route but fear not in the the Hudson genetics or from you said from your wife there's there's some artistic talent so you're gonna have 100% yeah a generation of uh artistic footballers um your children well I guess, fingers crossed that would be yeah. good <laughs> <laughs> well I guess sticking with I mentioned your children but sticking with childhood and going back to years Mark we like to start by talking about sort of your your early relationship with football sort of your your football origin story so to speak so taking it back what are some early memories that you have and how did you first sort of get involved in football and decide that you wanted to stay involved in it and pursue a professional career yeah good question I think <clears throat> From as young as I can remember, I think one of the first memories of, of really anything, I know this is probably sounds quite weird because you probably should remember stuff before that, but um, I was about five or six and I remember playing in the snow and I remember we started, I think we started with probably must have been 12 to 14 kids and at the end when it was bitterly cold, there was about three of us left. And I was just stayed there the whole time, finished the session, and remember nearly felt like I was freezing to death. Um, tears a lot, as you can imagine, at a very young age. You know, this is one of the kittens, I'll just get rid of him quickly. Um, so I would say, yeah, from five years old, I remember just being with the ball and training. Um, and they were, I think they're the, the consistent memories, really, of just if there was any kind of activity it was always with football I think that I never strayed away from that and it just went year on year on year really that I I never wanted to do anything else there was not one thing and everyone I think over the years you go through your school years don't you and that's your teachers say well, well what do you want to do 
And then you, I say football, and they say, well, what else do you want to do? And you're like, well, and you think, and I'm like, there's nothing in the brain that said to me, yeah, you could go and do that, something different, not football. And it was always football. Um, and I think that is the single-mindedness you probably need. And I know that sounds probably not what you'd expect to, for a coach to say to younger players because you do need that. You do need to have that sort of tunnel vision of where you want to go. But alongside that, I had very similar to the podcast you did before with Nadam and, and his route and his parents' guidance. I had a lot of... Um, guidance towards making sure I studied as well. Yeah, you'll have to excuse me. I keep passing kids. I have, I've only got two. It might look like more. Just a <laughs> conveyor yeah, my, belt. My, my, my mum for sure was someone from 10 and she drove me everywhere to football. And then my stepdad did from 12 onwards as well. And, and it was more, make sure you concentrate at school. Yes, we know you want to do football, but you have to have this as well because you never know. And there was... It wasn't to say they didn't support me with my idea of what I wanted to be in football. It was more the what if. Just make sure you have a what if. And that was it. It wasn't to say, no, you're not going to make football. Make sure you just do your schoolwork. They supported me through the football, but just made sure that I had a focus as well in addition to what I was doing in the football world. So, which is, I can't look back and thank them anymore, really, because I think you do need that. Um, but yeah, it was it was all I ever wanted to do. And I think you have to be lucky for sure. Because I someone there was a tweet the other day and it was a stat about I think it was two percent of out of one point five million young boys that actually make it in the professional game or end up playing at the top level, which is an incredible number, really. Um and I was I like I was lucky enough to be one of them and I never I never look back and think, oh, the what ifs, I never do the what ifs or what I could have been or would have been. I just, I enjoyed my route and my route was my route and I'm lucky enough to still be in studying the game now and still be involved in it. No, that's fantastic. And it's it's great as well. In those early days, you had, you know, such supportive parents at the start of your journey and also that there was always a kind of plan B in the back of your head as well. Because as you said, the, you know, it's, there's not many people that kind of make it to the top, which of course you did. But we'll start. Um, we'll start talking about um, Fulham. So I know you had a, a brief spell at Swindon when you were very young, but you went to Fulham, and then as you sort of progressed through the academy, there were some quite impressive players in and in and around the sort of Fulham team or the reserve team at the time. People like Kevin Betsy, Elvis Hammond, Sean Davis, that night. You know, people that all went on to have very good careers, but. For you personally, during your time at Fulham, Mark, is there any, is there one sort of skill you learned or one piece of knowledge you maybe retained during your time there that you think might have actually contributed to you, you having such a successful, long professional career? Yeah, those are all good questions, actually. I, don't, I think I wouldn't say there was one bit of knowledge because I think when I joined Fulham, we were in, would have been League Two. And this back at when I was 10, when I ended up going there from, from Swindon. And through the years that I was the lucky enough to stay there through to 20, I think I left at 21, the, the progression within the club was huge. There was a lot of money that came in over the period of time, not the beginning, but then Al Fayed came in, a lot of foreign, manager, foreign managers came in. But 
I would say in the sort of middle of the transition when Alfie came in, there was a lot of, let's say, old school players with old school values and the hard graft and what it took to to make it really and play at the top level. And I was, I would say, when I was cleaning boots and that sort of scholar coming through and you're in and around the same training ground, it's quite a small training ground. You see these players and you see what's expect, what's not, not expected, but what the standards are set and what um, what is required to do that. And it was a hard, I suppose, Nadim's probably similar. I'm not sure he's maybe a bit younger than me, but it's a lot, it's a harder route probably compared to it is now because of obviously all the rules and I think when I was if I'd got I think maybe someone like Paul Moody's boots wrong you you knew about it <laughs> you, you you literally knew what bit of black polish you got wrong um, and but it drove you to want to be in there and I think it wasn't um, not like a fearfulness but like wow I always used to sort of respect my elders and, and the older players in the game. And used to, when they used to walk down the tunnel and I was lucky enough to be around people like Lee Clark, I think Barry Hales, um, like you said, the younger players that came through that night, Sean Davis. And then we had like the likes of Zaha and Steve Marley and Edwin van der Sar coming through as, as I got a bit older. And he thought, wow, this is to be involved in around these players is great. And you can learn so much from each individual every day. Some of the ultimate professionals are in first. Like John Collins was probably one of my best mentors. When he came out of the first team, he came into the reserve team. And he played and captained our sort of reserve team, as it were. He, I used to sort of gravitate to him a little bit because he was in first in the gym doing this so-called pre-act um, 10 minutes on the bike to get the legs warm and then there was like do a bit of core and then he'd make sure he was ready for the session then he'd come in and stretch and do his yoga and had a, his own yoga teacher and this is years ago this is before pre-act was a thing and then those sort of people you came across daily you take so much from and then you realize well he's played to this age and he's played for these clubs and if he's doing that and that's what it took to get to there then you you have to absorb those things for sure. Yeah, it's always fascinating to hear, especially like you mentioned, sort of before the super mainstream age of these, you know, yoga and, and alternative sort of um, pre-warm ups. I remember when we spoke to Ricky Hill, um, who would have been playing, you know, a long, well, not too, I don't want to be disrespectful to Ricky, but would have been playing a while ago. And he mentioned when he joined um, Le Havre in France, how sort of far ahead they were of the curve when it came to these sort of like fitness techniques and rituals. Yeah. But um, sticking with Fulham, I believe it was in your final season. And at this point, they're in the Premier League, but you were sent out on loan a few times to Oldham and then to Crystal Palace. Was this Chris Coleman sort of sending you out to get experience? And did you expect to come back and be involved in the first team? Or was this kind of the club's way of putting you in the shop window, sending you on loan? Yeah, no, it's another, another good question. It's a good way of thinking about it, really. I think at the time, I wasn't thinking of anything other than going and playing men's football and playing first team football for a football club. And in, I think I had in my mind that I'm going to go and get experience and play and see what the first team environment is like properly. What When you're playing for three points, what it means to a club, what it means to fans, what it means to your teammates to, to prepare all week and then play that game on Saturday. And then I thought, 
it's just a step in a step on the ladder really going forward. I never thought beyond the loan. I never thought that, well, if I do this, then I can take another step and then I'll be even closer to the first team. I was just, this has come up, this manager Ian Dowry's come for you, wants you to go on loan. It's league one. It's a good, and then to be fair, Chris Coleman was brilliant with me. Really, really, really good. Open, honest conversation. I know Ian Dowry really well. He's asked me for you. I think it'd be a good move because I know him well. He's going to treat you well. You're going to play. I think you should go and go and play first in football um, with a view of coming back. And that was it. And it was, we'll support you. Anything you need, give us a call. Perfect situation. So I went, did three months under Ian Dowie and, and it went well. It was an experience. It was moving away from home, traveling up to Manchester, which obviously I, I am now, which as you know, moving around the world as you have, it's traveling's part of it. So yeah, it was an experience. I went and lived with um, a wonderful human being called Ernie Cooksey. So, I mean, unfortunately he's passed away um, quite a few years ago now. And I spent three months with him living in a flat, living in, um, we had no furniture. We literally had no sofas, no beds. And we'd, we'd rented off, um, a guy called Fitz Hall, who was there previously as a centre-half, who you probably both know well. Um, and it was just a TV. <laughs> and talk about experience. There was, I went up there thinking, right, yeah, it's the first division club. We're going to have a decent setup, and where I'm going to stay is going to be great and all that. And then I end up getting in, meeting Ernie straight away the first night. And it's like, walked into the flat thinking, right, <laughs> where am I? Where are you? And where's the furniture? He had like an inflatable bed. And I was like, so you, you must be getting your furniture to come up or something like that. And he was like, nah, this is me. Like proper guy from London, just not, just living the dream really. And um, so the next day we end up going to Argos and buying a load of inflatable equipment. I'd call it furniture, but it wasn't really furniture. It was just, just random. We had one inflatable armchair, like an inflatable sofa. We had, I ended up buying an inflatable bed that, would have had a hole in it literally as soon as I bought it. So every time I woke up, I was half on the floor, half sort of like on a waterbed. But then it, that's part of the experience. And then there was no, I was coming from Fulham where everything had gone next level, next level. Talk about the food and nutrition. And we were doing like a butty draw every day, which is ridiculous. Like you'd put, all your sort of initials into the hat, scrunch them up, put them in. You couldn't get picked two days on a spin, which is brilliant. This is your saviour. But if your name got picked out, you had to go up to the, the local butty shop, buy 20 different... You had to write a list down every day, go up there, do that. That was every day. I was thinking, this is not, it's not ideal for nutrition, but it was... It, it brought us together, and it's what I think some people need, and I... I enjoyed every minute of it. I'm not saying I was probably the healthiest coming away from eating three months worth of sandwiches every day, but it was, it was brilliant. And then I end up, Ian Dowie got his move to Crystal Palace because we did quite well. He was sought after by Palace. He left. Um, I went back to Fulham in December. And then in the January, when the window opened again, he rang Chris Coleman again, said, I'd like to take Mark the next step really um, and that's what happened and I had another good conversation with with Cookie and I went and had a top three months there as well which 
lucky enough we had hot food every day which is great which is obviously helps um and again you're meeting the next level players as well we had some top top players in around that squad some top mentors dougie freeman neil shipley um tony popovich the captain at the time excellent players aki Rialati. we had again could go through them all but it was it was the next step up and and then you see what it is for the championship to what's expected of a big club like Palace um, to play week in, week out and the results and being in and around London again um, was brilliant. And obviously then my loan literally finished and the rules were at the time as it was three months and I'd had a three months, couldn't extend it. And then they end up going through to the, the playoffs and they beat West Ham 1-0 in the final. And then... Obviously, I watched that on TV. I was at Fulham at the time watching that on TV, really. And then it was just a bizarre sort of summer. Um, they said, look, we're 100% going to come and try and buy you in the summer. And Fulham, Chris Coleman again was, I think, we'd want to keep you. You've had a great route. Good, open, honest conversation. You might have to wait, but you're going to be in and around the first team. And at that, t- at that time, I'd played regularly and I didn't want to wait. So it was, I think I want to go. Um, and he he was fine with it. He was listen. That's your decision. I want you to stay. This is your decision. I'll support you with it. I help try and sort of make the move happen. Really, as long as we get the right money and you you're happy, then you can go with my sort of blessings. Really, um, but he did want me to stay. Which again, I've spoke to Cookie lots since and and at the time, and he was a he was a great manager for me at the time. Even though I never got to play under him, which sounds mad. Um, but he, he dealt with all the situations perfectly, as I would talked about in many different things about taking bits from little people. How he dealt with me as a young player was excellent. Well, that's fantastic that he dealt with you so well. And obviously your relationship with Ian Dowie was brilliant because it gave you your first spell of first team football at Oldham and at Palace. Then, of course, you would be um, signed up for the um, that first season Palace had in the Premier League for quite a while. And you, of course, you played the first six games, which um, must have been great. But then I know, obviously, injuries struck and it would prove to be a very frustrating season for both you mm-hmm. and ultimately the club as they would go down and look Mark I know you didn't you didn't get the chance to play nearly as much as you would have liked that season but what was that that experience like of you know tasting Premier League football for the first time at a quite you know an early stage in your career too yeah I think it was um I talked about not thinking too much and overthinking stuff at the time I, obviously the older you get the more probably the more you think and the more knowledge you gain I think at the time I was just on a journey and I'd gone from League One on loan to the Championship on loan, then been bought. And then it was like, yes, Premier League. And it's going to be, you're going to be on match all my mates and family, you're going to be on match of the day, you know, every Saturday night. And it's sort of trying to sink in, but it's not. It's, it's the excitement of it all. And yeah, I would have 100% liked to have played more in the Premier League that season and over my career. But it wasn't meant to be. And again, I'm not someone to look back and think or think badly of it or negative in a way. The positives were the positives and that's the only way you can look back on it. I'm not, never tend to be too sort of down on, on what could have been. So I I think, yeah, I started the season. Um, Could I have played more? Probably. Um, 
did someone do a better job than me? Maybe. Um, but yeah, it was it was an experience and an experience of being frustrated at that time as well, because I'd come from then playing regularly to then not. Um, and that was a big learning curve for me at the time as well, because I end up not being in the squads really. And then sort of, I, I don't like the word, but languishing a little bit in between nowhere um, and trying to find myself again a little bit because a lot of players and me at the time or and now have this upward curve and then find a bit of nothingness when you don't play and you're in and around. And it was frustrating and I had lots of chats with Ian at the time because he had helped me gain all this experience and been part of his club and the teams that he picked and I owed him that and it was almost a point well then if I'm not going to play and I'm not going to run the squad do you think I should go and get more experience and go on loan again which I wanted to do I just wanted to play and he said no he just said it was a flat no um, and then we had our we had our ups and downs we had our sort of I suppose I say arguments they were arguments I suppose I had my opinion he had his and Ultimately, it went the way it went, and we ended up getting relegated. And um, then he ended up moving on. I think it was the second season after that. So it was football. That's the way football goes, isn't it? And I think I did learn a lot about myself at the time, and maybe I've dealt with situations better because of that um, going forward. So it was a learning curve, but yeah, the Premier League was fantastic. But it was it's a baptism. It's a baptism of fire for sure because you realise here's the level you've been at and then this is this is what the top level looks like and you get punished really quickly. And being a defender, obviously you get scrutinised quite a bit in, in the media as well. So it's it's all good. Yeah, quite the baptism of, of fire. I think from the outside, we can all remember Ian Dowie, Andy Johnson and uh, probably what Wayne Routledge sort of breaking out as well that season. So I can only imagine yeah. from the inside the experience that you guys must have had. But after the dramatic relegation, because it, it was on the last day, I believe you guys yeah. were away at the, the Valley. Everyone, again, kind of remembers that teams jumping up and down above each other on the final day. And eventually, sadly, it was Palace who were one of the teams to, to lose out. But that relegation, I believe, spelled the beginning of an eight-year spell for Palace that they would spend in the championship. And it was their first season up in the Premier League. But I think not too long before that, they had been whether or not it was called the Premier League, they'd been in the top flight. So this is kind of an extended stay outside of the top flight. Was there anything in your mind going on behind the scenes that contributed to sort of not being able to jump back into the Premier League so quickly? Because I think during your time at Palace, you had at least three different managers. Would you say that at boardroom level, there was not enough stability to sort of push the club consistently in the direction that it wanted to be? Mm, good question. Without obviously thinking about who was in charge at the time um I remember falling out with Simon obviously when I end up leaving Palace for Charlton obviously left on a free at the time and yes I had a few few different managers and different totally different styles within that time as well we had Peter Taylor we had um, Neil Warnock Ian Dowie and they all had bits that I've learned from for sure I mean Warnock's first session was a brilliant one um, he came in, his day one of learning about his whole squad was, right, we're going out, it's five aside, stick your shin pads on, see you outside. We're like, what? So we've walked out, not much of a warm-up, the smallest five-a-side pitch you've ever seen, big goals and two bags of balls. And he was in the middle of the two bags of balls. And he set the two teams up 
And then he went, when I blow my whistle, it starts. When I blow my whistle, it stops. We're like, what? What do you mean? He's like, yep, start of the five side, end of the five side. What happens in between? I'll show you. And he just threw a ball into the middle. It's not like no centre, no kickoff, no from the keepers, this, that and the other. And then one ball, two, I think two players went up, went to win the head, the ball went out. Next ball came in in any direction. And that's how that session was. And he literally worked out who was going to fight and who wasn't. And that was his day one. And I know that's totally different now and it's quite old school, but lots of different things of, of managers I've learned at the time and not trying to divert away from your question because I still remember what the, what the question is. I think, would I say it was a stable club? I think we had enough to do it. I think we had enough in that dressing room to sh that we should have done it. Um, but then you've got, to think, you've got to take into account the oppositions that you're playing against. And I think when, I think we were in the playoffs, um, we lost under Neil to Bristol. They, ended, they were better than us over the two games. Um, and ultimately we didn't, we didn't do it. And I think it's, it's all right saying, you look at, I look at all the sort of championship in the first division and uh, sort of league one, league two, and how teams have such a good season and then maybe falter at the end and some have late runs and how they get in and, watched it for years and played in it for years. I think it's such a gruelling season in the Championship and we ultimately were there or thereabouts, but we just didn't have what it would take to get over the line. And whether that was, I wouldn't say that it comes down to the instability. I think that just as a group, we didn't quite have it. Um, and that's what it takes and what sometimes when you, when you fail, that's, that's what you miss out on, that little bit of maybe quality or taking into account the pressures and we maybe could deal with it or that's just the way it goes. Yeah, it's very fascinating to hear of Warnock almost as like the precursor to Bielsa's murder ball type tactics with, with Leeds. So he was... His murder ball in a completely, di a completely <laughs> different aspect, I can tell you that. There was no running. It was just literally <laughs> ball after ball after ball and there was probably about 10 injuries within that session. And uh, yeah, from what I've read and heard about Bielsa's, his is a little bit more about running, but going for it after a big area, small areas. But ours was, I wouldn't say much bigger than my dining table with 20 players involved in it. Well, I mean, who, who likes running anyway? But no, in all seriousness, <laughs> you're right. Um, I've got a bit of an obscure question, I suppose, slightly still sticking on the time at Palace, though. And one player that I wanted to ask you about who you would have probably partnered at the heart of defence at one point in your Palace career. And that's, um, he's at this point, a Ligue 1 winner and a Euros winner as well, Jose Font. Um, yes. at, at the time, because he's come quite a long way, again, no disrespect to Palace at the time, but did you have an idea when you were playing alongside him of sort of the international footballer that he would eventually go on to become towards wow. the end of his career? Or, or was it some a surprise? Career. I actually spoke to him the other day um, to congratulate him on, obviously, then they went on win the, call it the Super Cup. Would you call it the Super Cup? I think it's, they, they beat, obviously, PSG, didn't they? Mm, um, yeah. And, yeah, I ended up speaking to him again the other day. When we, we've spoke... Not a lot, but obviously since playing next to him, and I look back and I think, I wouldn't say, I think we're similar age as well, which is, sounds bizarre how he's still going because I couldn't, I can play 10 minutes, let alone the seasons that he's had year on year on year. And you could see that he had the mentality. He was a fighter. 
Um, he loved the challenge. He would never shirk anything. Um, he was probably annoyed a few senior pros in some of his early sessions where he was flying into things and I think they weren't expecting it. Um, he was hungry. 100% he had the, the commitment to what it takes to, to be at the top. And you can see that. And obviously I've, I've followed him throughout his route and you can see the work that he puts in. Not the, not, the, not the games that you see. And what people don't see is the sacrifice behind all of that. And he, he 100% had that from a young age, for sure. He, he would do everything right. I talked about, or we talked about before, about the continental style of the pre-acts and doing what it takes. The extra little bits, he was doing that then. So, and he's still doing that now because I've, I obviously follow him on on Insta and we we message each other and that and I sort of his physique as well for his for his age and the, the work he puts in in the off season and the diet and he still manages to to take in sort of the family situation as well. He's got kids and yeah, I take my hat to him because he's um he's had some career. Yeah, I mean, what a career um, Jose Fonts had. It's really really quite impressive actually. But um. Look, you obviously spent a long time at Palace, Mark. Like you, you said, you know, there was that year where Bristol City pipped you in the semi-final of the playoffs. You, you know, there were some good Palace teams there, but you didn't quite um, make it up. You then had that, you know, that slightly unfortunate year at Charlton where relegation happened. But sort of moving on from that, you would then go to Cardiff club where you spent a bit of time as well. And it was yeah. another club where you were actually... First, I just really want to talk about the fact that you were made captain at Cardiff, much like you had been, well, you'd been captain at other clubs as well. And obviously, mm. it's an honour to be a captain of a club, but to do it for multiple clubs, it suggests something about your character. And what, what I want to know, Mark, is what, what do you think was the reason that so many people trusted you as being captain of their football club? Yeah, I think the word that you use there is trust, I think. Um, and I think that what I would say for myself is I mean we use the word a lot is honesty and I think I was honest whether I was doing well or not doing well I think I never sort of shirked any responsibility whether I was playing poorly but the team were playing well or I was playing well and the team wasn't I was never I'm playing well you aren't I was never I'm playing poorly so I can't say anything I was always consistent I think with my behaviours and I think that's a big thing for even in if you're not captain, I think being consistent with your behaviours through your ups and downs, through your team's ups and downs, I think that's a big, big thing. And I think, yeah, the trust the trust thing is, is huge. And I think that would be, obviously, it sounds like you blow your own trumpet, doesn't it, when you talk about yourself? So I'm not that used to in that respect by saying I was good at this, good at that. But I think we talk about the professionalism of the game and I was always involved in whatever it took to, to do better and I was always in, involved in the whole I'd say dressing room I was never pitched myself with one group or I was never just sat in the corner on my own with two or three others or then I was in sort of the larger part of the group I was always sort of I'd say individual but in a team like I was always trying to make people welcome if there was new players coming in if there was players that hadn't played because I'd been there I think I think that helps as well that you know that when players aren't playing and the stuff that, they're, that, that, that what they're going through and 
they have to come with you. You need them. You need the players that aren't playing to be part of the group as well. And I think I did that. I managed those situations well. Um, and I had senior players older than me that I had to sort of get on side. And I think when, say, a captain was a captain, then a younger player comes in and takes the captaincy. I think you have to manage situations. And I had that and I've experienced all that as well. I think by just being you and being, like, like I said, honest and open and just being part of everything and everyone and, and trying to get to know as many people as I could. I think that was a, a probably one of the, or oh, say one, the reasons that I was given the captaincy of the, of the clubs I was at. You know, that's, you know, it shows consistency and honesty. It's, um, it's good qualities to have and you were rewarded with um, the honour of being captains. But I guess uh, to talk a little bit more about Cardiff, I suppose you went on a bit of a bit of a journey there I mean you were always knocking on the doors of getting promoted right more or less from that first season you were there then there was obviously the Blackpool playoff final which was obviously unfortunate then there was the Carling Cup final where you know Cardiff for a penalty shootout away yeah, yeah. Um, winning that against Liverpool but then eventually in the you know 2012-2013 Cardiff would for the you know the first time in over 50 years you'd make it back up to the Premier League so do you think that whole kind of journey you've been on with those near misses in the in the previous seasons was really what fueled the team to that ultimate um, promotion in 2013? Yeah, for me, it was. It's that's something that you gain through experiences. I think the the ups and downs of the career and and near misses and the lows of the football that ultimately come with the game because there's it's not consistent highs. Um, but they're, they're all learning curves. And I think that I praise Malky hugely for this at the time is the, the recruitment he did and the players that he brought in and the age group of the, the team and not just the players, but the, he dug into all the backgrounds of them as well, all the players that he brought. Because I think when he, he came, he only had 11 pros. I think it was the very, very first day he came in, there was 11 pros and he had to then recruit a lot of players and turn that into a unit very, very quickly. And he did that perfectly. Um, and the coaching staff were great at the time as well, and they helped us all gel. And I think the players that were there, like myself, helped the new players coming in. And they brought, they had partners. Some were obviously not with partners. Some had family and children already. Some were two children. And we, yeah, it was, it brought us all together. And it was a new group, but a group, all probably at the right time came together with enough experience individually and as a collective that thought, yeah, we've got a lot of grafters here and we've got a lot of people that would put them, put their teammates first before themselves. And that's what we were as a team. We were a team full of players that would look across, and I've said this before, look across to your teammate and think, right, we're in a battle here, but I've got your back. And then, that would be the whole team. And it wouldn't just be the 11, it would be the people on the bench. They'd be ready to come on and sacrifice as well. And that's ultimately what you need to be able to be successful over such a long season. Well, on that season in the Premier League, I think, unfortunately, again, injuries would hamper you personally in terms of appearances. And then obviously, again, the club, it was kind of a one, one and done as far as up and down. Um, and there were some changes that took place that season. Um uh, you know, even in, in ownership, there was some interesting decision made about the, the club's kit, sw swapping from uh, from blue to red. That was done by Vincent Tan, I suppose. And then 
um, Solskjaer would come in. Of course, he's managing, speaking of red kits, he's managing the Red Devils these days, his former club. Was there a quite stark change in atmosphere around the club, given that Malky Mackay had kind of, he'd only been there for a few years, but he was the one who sort of brought you up. And then all of a sudden, yeah. the kits changed colour. You've got a manager in who's relatively inexperienced, but quite a high profile name. Did you notice, yeah, a shift around the club? Well, so if I put the red kit into the right, the season we got promoted was in the red kit. <laughs> so we literally kicked off that season with what had gone through the summer as the owner decided to change the badge, change the colour of the kit, and that was it. That was happening. So there was no sort of let's ask the fans forum, let's ask all the supporters what they think. This is an idea. It was this is happening and it was as you'd imagine uproar because changing a, a, a crest on a shirt that has been that crest for however many years and a team that's played in a certain color home kit since they started and then this is going to change but and i know i've seen certain questions asked about woods would i think one of the questions i saw and this wasn't to me this is to a fan i think would you not take promotion and stay in blue and I think this is to say to two different fans and one was yes I would rather not take the promotion and stay in blue and one was well thoroughly enjoyed getting promoted and try and forget what happened with the kit but you're going to get split you're going to get a divide in that and I think it was difficult and we as a group of players and I think playing unit and staff we dealt with it very very well because there was a an atmosphere from the fans to the owner and and it wasn't gelled it wasn't to, like connected and i think normally everything's connected to get promoted but i think what we did as a group of players and staff we had to then just concentrate on what we were doing um we couldn't make a decision on the kit it wasn't our decision we just had to focus on what we could do to bring the fans with us and that's performances and that's what we did and, I, and we got promoted with that and then yes the change when I think it was towards Christmas when Marty left, Solskjaer came in. Ultimately, did it work? Um, I'd end up leaving, and then Solskjaer, not too long after that, um, went as well. We'd had, I'd had ups and downs, and and I'd say conversations with the manager, and, and maybe the club was shifting in a different direction, which is fine. But football's football, and I, ultimately, I end up leaving and. Now he obviously he left and then he went back to to, to Norway, didn't he? And, and managed again, and then obviously then went to to Man United. Then's done excellently, and I've seen him since. We've had a good conversation since, um, and which has probably been documented before. And he, he pulled me off the bench at halftime, and I was I think first team coach, and he came up and said, "Look, whatever happened at the time, I regret it. Um, I learned a lot about myself." And I said, "Well, I did the same." Um, and that's ultimately a testament to him because he's a Man United manager and he comes and pulls me off Huddersfield bench at half time. I think we were winning. So it was like, this shouldn't be happening at half time. But he did. He said, I want to have a chat with you after the game. We did and shook hands and, and then that was that. So, but football's football and it, it did change. It was, it was a pressure environment for sure um, at Cardiff at the time. But I ultimately look back and have nothing but praise for what went on there and the people I met and lots of people I still speak to now it's such a good time yeah it's a 
really really interesting and cool story about um you and ollie having that um encounter uh, a few years later after the fact and good to good to know that yeah you sort of be able to put your differences to, to one side and both learn from the uh, time that you spent at cardiff and the sort of different sides of the experience that you were both on but on the characters at cardiff just a sort of final word on that club um and probably brief one as well because it's somewhat of a sensitive uh, subject obviously one of your former teammates peter whittingham we all know sadly um, I think yeah. it was uh, last year, even in 2020, um, lost his, his life. Very unexpectedly tragic accident. What, if anything, did that teach you, I guess, about your footballing family and the relationships that you've, you've built down the years? Did it end up being sort of a time that you reconnected with fellow Bluebirds, um, given sort of the, the mourning that people had in, in common? Or um, yeah. was there an, an opportunity for you to pay your respects to to Peter yeah I think yeah it obviously is a sensitive subject and obviously it's such a such a sad thing to happen um and it wasn't it was something that we ended up reconnecting with players that were previous and um that I spent short times with long times with and and I I sort of pride myself on speaking to quite a lot of the people that I've always played with and keeping those those sort of lines open, lines of communication always open. I think there was, um, we were in lockdown and I think there was a couple of occasions where we had quite big Zoom meetings um, and a few obviously toasts to, to, to Peter. Um, and then obviously a few tears shed for sure. Um, but yeah, it does. It was, I mean, he, football's lost such a talent and his family have lost um, a husband, a father, and it's very, very sad. And I've been, I've been back to Cardiff and obviously I've, I've went and paid my respects. Um, it's something that I wanted to do and we did as family. So it's, yeah, it's something that brings people together. Um, and obviously you wish that it didn't happen that way um, but yeah no we we were a very very tight-knit group in in Cardiff um, and the different squads were and Peter was involved in all of them so as you can imagine I was there for most of those squads as well so that all the different people that maybe branched off and went to different clubs within those periods of time we've probably all been in contact I think. Well moving on to to Huddersfield um, and that was a move that you made uh, at 32 uh, Mark after you left Cardiff and you spent six years at Cardiff um, so a, you know quite a big transition from one stage of your career to I guess what would end up being your the final club that you would play for and um, you spent a few seasons in the championship with Huddersfield before at least to me uh, from the outside quite an unexpected um promotion to the premier league via the playoffs so you would have your playoffs oh, it, was it, it was unexpected <laughs> yeah even from from you guys i it was unexpected i can tell you that i think okay. from where we were <laughs> as a as a club yeah for sure yeah okay good good to get that validation because i'm like in my head i'm like i'm not crazy that this was an unexpected no, no, thing. No, okay. no, no. <laughs> i think we were obviously to add i'll obviously let you carry on with the, the the question but i think from where i joined i think we've been floating around 16th that it was a very surprise promotion. And I think, yeah, ultimately it was because we were a club that was looking to be mid-table at best, um, for which would have been a big, I suppose, gain 
um, and a good season and a good finish. So, well, basically, yeah, what you did was you and the rest of the the Huddersfield lads outdid yourselves that season and made it into the playoffs and then won the playoffs, made it into the Premier League. But that would actually be where you kind of called it a day, hung up your boots. That was the last season, was in the championship prior to the to the season in the Premier League. Were you tempted by another shot at the top flight or was that at this point in your career um, kind of a step too far? Did it feel like kind of the, the right time to call it a day? Yeah, 100% the right time, 100%. Um, however hard those conversations are and the feelings of, you want to play forever it's not the case um and definitely wasn't for me and my my body um I'd had previous conversations um quite a while before that actually with the manager and the um and and Dean the chairman um about what was the plan going forward and I'd signed a a three-year contract of 34 which is obviously a big surprise to some of my teammates to be honest and some and some of the people outside of of what knew what was going on and I think Obviously, with the conversations that I'd had with with David uh, Wagner and, and and Dean, was there was a route to follow on, um, and I want from them for me to do that, and I think that was excellent. I didn't, it didn't, ha- it, well, it doesn't happen much. It's happening more and more over the last few years, but it hadn't happened a lot before with um, players literally stepping away from playing and straight into being a coach or learning to be a coach. Um, and we had those conversations leading up and I'd started the season and done well up to, I think, just before sort of Christmas time, December time, maybe, where I'd, I'd got injured and we'd started the season really well and it, we went on to, Hef came in and did really well, uh, Michael Heffley, and the team just kept going and sort of ground it out towards the end and it was a bit of a grind, but we ended up getting promoted, which I joked to, my agent, um, Chris Page at the time, and said, if we, if we do do it, that'll be, uh, I think I'm going to hang my boots up. And he's like, okay, yeah, we'll have that conversation at the time, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I think in my head, yeah, I'd already sort of thought, if if we do end up getting promoted to Premier League, what a way to sort of finish. Um, but even still, I'd had that in my mind to make that decision with the manager and, and go through this. Because he, he did say, I knew I wasn't really playing that much at the time anyway. Um, and I wasn't going to play. If I wasn't playing the Championship, I'm definitely not going to play in the Premier League in my mind. So that, and probably the same with the manager. Then this is a great opportunity to do that transition. And he did say, listen, if you want to carry on playing, I will support you. You can go and find and go and play, find a, a club. And I'm sure there'll be takers that you can do it the following season. And we'll do that transition a year later. And I said, it was a difficult decision. And that's that's the conversations we had. And I think that is testament to him as well, because it was very, very soon after we'd been promoted. And he'd given me, at the time, it felt like that was a harsh conversation because it was, I think, it was two days later. Um, and it seemed really early. But he actually, what he did was he gave me my summer to, to come to terms with it before I came back. And, and not do it two or three days before pre-season starts and say, well, by the way, I'm thinking this. And you're sort of like, right, well, I've got, to, I'm starting training in three days. But he gave me the full summer to come to terms with it. And he was always there if I needed him to have further conversations. And it was difficult. And I remember the conversations on the way home to, to my wife saying how 
it had made me feel really like it was it was gutting because I think you grew up as I was as a five-year-old, those first memories of wanting to play football. And now I'm not going to be playing football. Um, but I've got a new hunger for coaching um, and what it takes to become a coach. And this club had given me that opportunity to do that. And it was a brilliant transition. I got the first, I think, three, four months of the season. I did a little bit of pre-season because the manager, again, was like, don't just stop. You can down train, like you to be involved in the preseason and help some of the new players coming in. And he'd see me as a person that was able to do that. And I did, um, although my heart wasn't really in the preseason, if I'm honest, because when you know you're not going to play, putting your body through that is, uh, you've got to be wholehearted, you've got to be committed. And I think once I thought, what am I doing preseason for if I'm going to retire? So, but I ended up, I would do that. And then I, I shadowed most parts of most departments within the club. Um, I was in their meetings, their first team meetings, some recruitment meetings. I did some media, followed them, sat in with them, sat in with the academy, took the academy for a month. Uh, one of the teams um, sat alongside uh, Frankie Bunn and he helped me as well. Um, and he just sort of helped me. He just said, dive in, dive straight in. Don't don't just drip feed in and out. He said, you go and do what you want to do and I'll support you. And that was Frankie Byrne and that was the manager at the time. And, and then obviously I did that. I went back to the first team and then I got offered the opportunity to take um, the under 23s or the under 19s. And I said to the manager, I, I want to take the under 23s because I see that as being as close to the first team as you can. Um, and I think I can get some players across. And that was it. That was, that was the start. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the time of the academy. It was brilliant. And I enjoyed all the transitional bits of, of learning what, what it takes within all the different departments and sitting into the first team analysis meetings and listening how that they were coming up with their themes and plans and team trends that they were looking at and how they broke it down and delivered it. So it was, it was excellent. Well, we've just got one more question for you, Mark. And look, you've been telling us about how, you know, after, you know, what a way to bow out with the promotion, you're then shadowing all the different departments. You end up working with the academy, you become the under 23 manager at Huddersfield. And then you even, you know, you we sort of reference it at the start, but you were the caretaker manager on a couple of occasions for Huddersfield too. And clearly coaching is something that you very much enjoy. So moving forward, is your ambition very much to get another coaching job and try and make a career as a football manager? Absolutely. No questions asked. No no hesitation with the answer. Um, it's something that, I, again, when I when I was finishing football playing, I thought, what could equal that or what could better that? Because it was all I'd ever wanted to do when I was growing up. And now, since I started coaching, sounds mad, but I prefer it. I think being able to deliver to your group, be part of a unit and have all those decisions to make. And it's your identity, your idea and how you deliver it and what goes into it and all the, the coaching courses. And I'm coming to the end of nearly finished, just finishing my pro license, which has been a journey as well. But yeah, hundred percent. I want to manage um, and get back in as soon as I can. I'm uh, actively looking. So it will be, um, I look forward to it. As soon as I step back in, it'll be it'll be something that I'll be proud of for sure. 
Well, we look forward to seeing whenever you know that role comes about. We've got our fingers crossed for you. I'm sure it will. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure you won't have to wait too long. But that is um that is all we have time for today. So I just want to say a big thank you to my co-host Kaitel, as always, and then an even bigger thank you to our guest Mark Hudson today. It was um honestly great to chat to you, Mark. And um, for our um, listeners um, of this podcast, what's the best way for them to follow you and kind of keep up to date with everything you're doing? Yeah, um, well, firstly, thank you both for, for reaching out. It's a, it's a great opportunity for me to come on and, and again, done a couple of podcasts, but I think what you guys are doing is brilliant. I thought the questions were great as well, so well done. Um, and again, thanks for having me on. I think, from, I think people could, I'm on most social media platforms. I think I'm on Twitter uh, and I'm, I'm on Instagram and a lot of, a lot of the Instagram stuff is family based, but there's a lot of what goes on that I do a bit of a fitness freak on the bike as well. So I'm, I'm on them most days. So yeah, it's uh, feel free to follow you. I mean, it's on there somewhere. You'll have to find it, but yeah, no, I, I look forward to, to being able to post the, the news of a, a new job soon. That'd be, that'd be great. We're all looking forward to that. Uh, thanks again, Mark. I think when when that job does come around, if if you can find the time, we'd love to to have you back on to to get a take on that perspective of, of sure. uh, the consistent coaching side of things. Um, so best of luck um, to you in that endeavor, and then uh, best wishes to you uh, to you and the rest of your family as well. Really much appreciated you taking this time to to join us. I know Joe and I. I'll speak for both of us. Have really really enjoyed this conversation. And then. For our listeners and viewers, if you've enjoyed listening to this or watching it as well, please do give us a follow, give us a like, give us a subscribe if you can. You can find us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Just look for United Mates Football Podcast. Same for our YouTube channel as well. And then across social media, we're at United Mates FP. That's going to be Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook handles. You can check out our website as well. That's www.unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other too. Goodbye.